Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. If you looked up determination and grit in the dictionary, I think there's a good chance you'd see the name of my guest today. Turia Pitt is a successful business owner, an author, a motivational speaker, and a mum of two. But to get to where she is today, Turia's had to overcome challenges many of us could scarcely imagine. Turia was just 24 years old when she was severely burned in a grass fire while competing in an ultramarathon in Western Australia. Doctors doubted she would survive, but not only has she survived, she's thrived. Turia, I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you again today. Last time we spoke, you were interviewing me, but I get to ask the questions today, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, it's really lovely to be here, Julia, and to, and to speak to you again, and I understand that I'm the one now under interrogation. So go for it. Okay, I'm going for it. And I first want to take you right back to your childhood. You came to Australia from Tahiti when you were little and you had a very close relationship with your mother. What influence did she have on you growing up, your mum? I think both my parents played a role in the development of my character. My mum was very loving, quite positive, quite an optimistic person and always encouraging. You know, if I wanted to sing, she'd say, darling, you've got an amazing voice. You go for it. I don't, I don't have an amazing voice at all. So she was always, always incredibly encouraging. You know, as a kid, my mum had four children. There was four of us. We always had dinner, homemade dinner cooked for us. The house, it wasn't neat and tidy. It's not like everything was always put away, but she worked full time. There was dinner always for us. And then when all of the kids were in bed, she'd, she'd type on her old clunky typewriter. So she converted that awkward little space underneath the stairs into her home office. I guess as a kid, I never really realised how amazing that was, that she carved out this little bit of space and time for herself every night to do something that she wanted to do. And she ended up, her first book wasn't successful, so, sorry, mum, but her her second book was a commercial success in it. She wrote a trilogy. It's been translated all over the world and I think it was translated in over 10 different languages. Even though I didn't realise it at the time, she was proof to me that even if you're working and you've got a busy life and you have family, you can still set aside a bit of time for yourself in your day. I think that was a really good lesson. 
She managed to write, despite not having a room of one's own, of course, this podcast is named for Virginia Woolf, who is uh, famous for that saying that a woman needs a room of her own to write. She managed to do it under the stairs and write uh, blockbuster novels. It's fantastic. How, how did that change yeah. your life when those novels were coming out and she was getting more recognised? You know, I was a teenager, so I found the attention on my mum embarrassing and I remember mum wanted me to go to the launch of her second book and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not coming. And she said, well, the book's dedicated to you, so are you sure you don't want to come? And I think I was just, I was a 15-year-old kid. I had my own life, my own problems at school. Hand on my heart, I can't say that I was super encouraging or super supportive of her, but I also think it's not a child's job to do that for their parents. One of the many jobs that a parent has is to be supportive and encouraging of their children. But I don't think it's a child's job to do the same back to their parents. But I did go to the launch. I did go to the launch and seeing all the people in the room, seeing how excited they were about her books. And you've got to remember too, it's really common these days to have First Nations authors talking about their experiences, right? That's almost standard these days. Mum's a Tahitian woman. Her books were about Tahiti. And up until that point, there hadn't been any Tahitian authors. There'd been all of these French people who'd written books about their experiences in Tahiti. And so it was from a, a lens that wasn't always accurate and didn't always reflect that Tahitian experience. And are the books still available? I'm completely intrigued now. I'm going to have to get reading. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are still available. My mum's name is Celestine Vite. They sound like fabulous books. Now, you were growing up with brothers. I mean, when was the first time you said to yourself, whether it was in your family home or at school or anywhere else, hmm, I think girls get treated differently to boys? I think I got lucky in a sense because my dad was very anti-consumerism, anti-capitalism, and, you know, when I was six I wanted a Barbie and dad refused. He was like, you know, we don't we don't fall for capitalism, we don't fall for marketing kind of thing. And so my dad my dad treated me like he treated my brothers. He was quite he was quite hard on us kids. I didn't notice too much in primary school that boys were treated differently to girls. It was more once I got into high school that those differences became amplified. I surfed as a kid and as a teenager. And I remember once I had a poster on my wall, a surfing poster of a guy surfing. One of my friends said, I'll take that down because you look like a kook. Because it's just a kooky thing to have a poster of surfing on your wall. I think this is really interesting. You know, I don't think boys or men need permission to be good at something, to be able to have a go, right? But if you're a woman and you want to partake in a sport or you want to do something, you had better do it bloody well. Otherwise, you don't have a space. There's no place for you. And that's really hard when you're new to something or when you're a beginner or when you're learning something new. And you can probably relate to that, Julia, with your education and your experience. If you're going to do something, you have to be exceptional, particularly if you're doing something that's traditionally seen as a, a man's job. I think that's right. And I think it's also about if a woman does something that's traditionally a male thing, 
and she fails at it, that's seen to say something about the capacity of all women. Whereas if a man fails in a traditional male occupation, well, that's just on him, you know, it's saying something about him, but not the capacity of men overall. And I think that extra pressure means that it's hard to find the space to fail and learn and do better. And we all need that to get better at what we want to do and what we're aspiring to do. Even if you don't perform in an outstanding manner, it's still seen to be a failure, which is really hard to wrap your head around. I'm a mining engineer by trade. I did mining engineering at uni. I think there was you know five girls out of our graduating class of 40 guys. Actually, all of the girls did really, really well in their university studies. And I think that was because we felt that you couldn't be mediocre because you wouldn't get a chance. You had you had to be exceptional. You had to do really well because that was how you proved that you were worthy of taking up space in that domain. And what made you choose mining engineering? I mean, you would have known going into it that it was going to be very few women and, and lots and lots of men in the class and lots of men in the world that you were going to graduate into. What was the fascination with that? I looked at mining blasts on the internet and they looked really cool and exciting. I loved maths and I loved challenges and I loved physics and I loved finding solutions to problems and I loved doing things that were hard. So I was really good at maths at school. I came first in maths and everything like that. The fact that it was a challenge, it appealed to me. I did know that there was going to be a lot of boys. I somehow presumed that they would all be super spunky and... There were some spunks, but let's just say engineering doesn't attract all of the super spunky guys out there. And I remember my first day of uni that one of the first classes I had was mining geology. And I went to the class, I went to the classroom. And when I walked in, there was these boys at the back of the class and they said, you're in the wrong class. And I said, oh, isn't this mine geology? And they're like, yeah, but it's not the class that you're in. And I'm not sure why they did that. It might be because I was a woman. It might have been because I'm a woman of colour. It might have been because I was wearing hot pink short shorts. I'm not quite sure, but I was explicitly told that I was in the wrong wrong place. Heavens, I can imagine that that was the first of many incidents that were really about telling you this isn't the right place for you. But you did graduate and you did go into engineering And so you were living in Western Australia with your partner, Michael, going on lots of adventures and enjoying your work when life took a very unexpected turn. So I'm going to take you now to 2011 when you'd entered an ultra marathon. Now, the thought of running 100 kilometres would have many people sprinting in the opposite direction. What was it that attracted you to even going for such a challenging feat? I always liked running as a kid. Winning cross-country was not cool. It was a bit daggy, but I always won cross-country. For me, it was always therapy because I knew that if I had a bad day or I'd had a fight with my parents or I'd had a fight with a friend at school or I was overwhelmed by my studies, I knew that I could go for a run and I'd return back home and I'd feel more balanced, I'd feel calmer, I'd feel more able to cope with the challenges in my day. I know that sounds strange because it's like, well, what 16-year-old has challenges? But it was a form of therapy for me. And I know there's been a lot of research done now about what exercise does for us and how beneficial it is for not only our bodies but also our brains. So I always liked running 
and I was a good runner. I wasn't a fast runner. I was a slow runner. But I had this dogged part of my nature that just kept going. And can you tell us about what happened in that ultra marathon? Yeah, so about a quarter of the way through the race, about 25 kilometres, I was running to the next checkpoint. The checkpoints are about 10 kilometres apart. So I was running to the next checkpoint. I could hear what I thought was road trains on the highway and I knew the next checkpoint was just over the other side of the highway. And so I started to just pick up my pace just a little bit just so I could get to that next checkpoint. I was at the bottom of this gorge and there was a group of people around me and suddenly I noticed this fire that was approaching really, really fast. And in that moment, it feels to me like a split second decision. I knew I could either go back the way I came, which was shoulder height, spinifex grass. So I thought that would be perfect fuel for the flames. Or I could try running up the side of the gorge. There was less vegetation, so less fuel, but fire goes faster traveling uphill. So in that split second, I made the decision to run up the side of the hill. The fire got closer and closer. There's nothing you can really do at that point. And I remember, I remember literally burning and I had one thought and I just remember thinking about my partner, Michael. I just thought it was really unfair that we wouldn't get to do all the real, like the really great, the really great things we had planned for our future. Because I I thought, you know, I thought this is it, I'm going to die here. And then when the fire had passed and I was still standing, I got this, I think it must have been a surge of adrenaline because I I got this sense of elation that I had survived. We waited on that lonely hillside for about four hours. We were medevaced out of there. I went to the hospital in Kanana in the small town that we were living in. I said, can someone please call my boyfriend? And then I woke up a month later in Concord Hospital in Sydney. And I always get asked, were you scared during the fire? Was that painful? It wasn't so much because you, you're filled with all of this adrenaline and all of this stress. And of course, that's your body's natural coping mechanisms kicking in. But I always say hospital. Hospital was, the, was really the hard work of the process. And can you describe to us when you did wake up what condition you were in? Yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty fucked, Julia. Don't really know how else, how else to say. You know, I was burnt to sixty five percent of my body. I'd lost my fingers, my hair was shaved off. I think I weighed maybe like thirty eight kilograms at the time. The idea of being able to run again was laughable because I couldn't roll over, I couldn't wipe my ass, I couldn't feed myself. All of my physical abilities had been stripped away. When you're in that at that point in time, and maybe some people can relate when they're facing a goal that feels really big and really challenging and insurmountable. And what I didn't do is I didn't think about getting to that end point or getting my life back because where I was and where I wanted to be, that was just a vast, vast difference. It's like never being a runner and saying, I'm going to run a marathon. It can be really overwhelming. And when you're overwhelmed, that's not very motivating, is it? It's more demoralizing. Um, and so what I what I decided to do was just focus on the day, the day in front of me. And when that was too hard for me, I would just focus on getting through the next hour. And it sounds a bit trite, I know, when I explain it, but that's honestly what I did. 
And that's what kept you going and moving, as well as the support that you had from others. <laughs> You're so right. It was not a journey that I did by myself. And I think that's why, you know, when people say to me, oh, you you must have just had a spark inside of you. That's why you survived. I don't think that's true because I survived thanks to the work of the surgeons and the nurses and the physios who helped me. I survived because I was surrounded by love. I survived because I had a dedicated partner. I had my mum and Michael. I had family and friends who came in and, and saw me and supported me and helped me. It wasn't something that I did by myself and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to. I don't think anyone achieves anything by themselves. But if I didn't have people that I loved in my life and people who loved me for the person that I was, irrespective of what I looked like or what my achievements were, they loved me regardless. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I am today. And of the others who were with you when the fire came, what happened to them? Yeah, so two of them weren't burnt and people find that really hard to understand but it's a bit like... I don't know if you've ever seen footage of a street when a fire's been through and and some houses are completely razed, then there's a house that's still standing. Kate Sanderson was the other woman. She got really badly burnt as well. She got burnt to 65% of her body. She lost half of her foot. Half of her foot was amputated. She also did Marathon de Sable a couple of years ago, which is a 250-kilometre ultramarathon through the Sahara Desert. So she's the definition of badass, and the two other guys got burnt to like 25, 25% of their bodies. Yeah, I did as Prime Minister uh, visit a number of fire regions and you're absolutely right, the randomness that you can walk down a street and houses will be completely gone and then there's one that doesn't look affected in any way. I mean, a big part of what you've done since 2011 is you've shared this story. At one level, I think that's just so important to do because, you know, everybody in their own lives has things not as dramatic and profound as what you've lived through, but has had events where they've had to think about how am I going to come back from this? And hearing your story of hope and resilience, I think, gives people comfort and it gives people strategies as to what they should be doing in their own lives. But How wearing is it for you to be constantly revisiting that trauma? That's a good question. I think it does, it does take a toll. So I don't, it's not like every single day I'm sharing it with everyone all the time because I'm a mum, I've got two little boys, I've got a running program, I've got my own podcast. You know, I'm kind of a normal person living their life, looking at the time going, it's crap it's 245 I've got to go pick out the boys from school but part of the reason why I wanted to share it in the first place was that I'd never seen anyone like me in the media before so I thought that was really important for diversity so people saw a female with scars a female that looks different a woman of color on their screens and in the media I still I still don't think we see enough people who look different or who look outside what we describe as being the conventional norm. That was part of the reasoning. The other reason was that it makes me happy when people come up to me in the street and they say, oh, my gosh, Terea, I was going through a really difficult divorce and I listened to your podcast and it gave me this or it gave me that. Oh, Terea, I read your book. 
I went through a cancer diagnosis and I read it. I read it every day and it gave me strength and it gave me hope. So that when I hear things like that, it makes me really happy. And I guess for me, it's how I find reason in all of this. I guess it's how I'm finding my purpose. And I think there's been a lot of interesting research done about the topic of trauma and how you navigate your way through it. But one of the ways is this guy called James Pennybaker had this experiment where people would sit down every day for 15 minutes and write about their trauma and the end goal was to kind of find a story in it or find a purpose in it. And if you're able to do that and then use it in a positive way, it is really beneficial for yourself, for your healing and for your mental health as well. So I think for all of those reasons is why I shared my story and why I still share my story today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And you've certainly done even more good with it. Everything you've said is hugely impactful, but you've also worked closely over the years with Interplast, which is an organisation that sends volunteer surgeons and health professionals across the Asia-Pacific region to provide life-changing surgery for people who've suffered burns. Can you tell us about that Mm. work? It just sounds amazing. Yeah, so I found out about Interplast through my surgeon, Peter Hirsch, because he would disappear for weeks at a time from the burns in it and he'd come back. And so I'm a bit cheeky. So I said, well, where do you go on all your holidays? because you keep nicking off and then just popping back up. And he told me, he said, well, I'm not going on holidays. I'm going overseas with Interplast and we're, you know, performing surgeries on people who can't afford it. And I thought it was really interesting and it sounded like really impactful work. And I think with a lot of charities, it's difficult to see the tangible impact that they have, but with Interplast, you can see it, right? You can see the impact that they make. And I was on Celebrity Apprentice a couple of years ago and I raised money for Interplast and with that money they were able to fund a trip to Samoa. And it's just, it's things that we don't think about in Australia because if you're born with cleft lip or cleft palate in Australia, it gets fixed within a couple of weeks. You'll have a little scar, it'll heal, you'll grow into an adult, you'll still have a scar but it won't be that noticeable Whereas in developing countries, they don't, they don't have the medical infrastructure that we take for granted. They don't have trained professionals around all the time to perform those operations. And so with that trip to Samoa, there was a kid called John. He had cleft lip and cleft palate. If you've got those things, it's hard for you to eat. It's hard for you to drink. It's hard for you to talk. It really impacts your physical health, also your mental health and your emotional health. And Interplast were able to operate on him. It's only a 15-minute operation, but it's life-transforming for the patients that they operate on. So they do all sorts of stuff. Everything and anything that can be remediated with surgery, that's what Interplast does. 
It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for telling us about that. Now, one of the things that really strikes me about how you engage in the public sphere now and how you've done that over these years is, of course, people are interested in your own story and we've been talking about that, but you've really broaden the lens and you speak very powerfully about issues associated with race and gender and inequality. You're passionate, you're vibrant, you've said that you sometimes get described as bossy. In all of that, is that something that you see through the lens of gender? Is that one of the things that has struck you, being seen as a bossy woman is something that gets said about women but doesn't get said about men? Oh, totally. A man would never get called bossy, he'd get called bold or making the right decision for the team or doing what needs to be done. Whereas a woman gets told she's bossy, she's over the top, she's being too pushy. I think that's because of how we've been socialized. This is a generalization, of course, but you know, we don't want to socialize to think of others, to take care of others, to put others first. Boys and men don't get socialized that way. They get socialized to be independent, to be successful, to look after themselves. And so it's something that gets played out from a very, very young age. And I'm trying really hard to not do that with my boys because one day they're going to be men. But I was making hot chocolate for one of my sons and he got really annoyed at me. He was like, you've got the wrong hot chocolate. That's the wrong brand. You got the wrong one. And I said, well, why don't you ask dad to get you the right one? And he said, well, it's your job. It's your job to get the hot chocolate. And so, you know, I don't know how he's picked up that message, whether it's the fact that, yes, I'd normally do the grocery shopping or whether it's just a message that he's picked up from being at school. But even as a four-year-old, he's identified that the woman's job is to make sure she knows what what kind of hot chocolate the family likes. So it happens in the home, it happens everywhere. Uh, You called this out in 2021, you spoke to the National Press Club and you spoke very passionately about gender equality. You said, I love this country, but it's hard to reconcile my love for this country with the fact that women are not equal here. What reaction did you get when you made a statement as bold as that? Well, I think a lot of people were taken aback because I think sometimes it's easier for us to shoehorn someone, right? So it might be easier for people to say, well, Therese, an inspirational figure, we're going to hold her up like that, but she's not allowed to get political and she's not really allowed to have an opinion or to say what she thinks. So I think maybe it might have made some people uncomfortable But it is a really difficult thing to reconcile, isn't it, when you know that based on your gender, based on your race, based on my disability, that I'm not really as equal as other people in Australia. I'm a woman of influence, right? I've got large social media followings. I'm getting interviewed by the first female Prime Minister of Australia. I've got a really great education. I've, I've, I've had a great upbringing and I've got a great, you know, great foundations with which to grow from. But despite all that, I still feel like it's very much an uneven playing field. And so you are calling that out. And if you had to kind of list them, I mean, it's a hard thing to do. What do you think are the big issues for Australian women and girls today? Well, I think because I'm a mum, I'm very much thinking about the needs of mothers and the contradictions that come with being a mum. So, for example, 
breast is breast, as in breast milk is breast, but then there's not a lot of support around breastfeeding. Even breastfeeding isn't, it's not an easy job. It should really be classified as work, but it doesn't contribute to GDP or anything like that, nor does mothering in general. If you've got two parents who are running a household and have children and they're both working, they're both contributing to that household, it is still primarily the woman who's remembering the hot chocolate, who's remembering the soccer shoes for after school, who's emailing the teachers. So she's carrying all of that all of that load as well. There are a vast array of inequalities in Australia. And I think particularly if you're a First Nations woman in Australia or a woman of colour, I think it's even harder. Another dimension of how women get treated differently, women and girls, is they get judged on appearance. And you've dealt with this issue. In your second memoir, Unmasked, you wrote, I understand that well-meaning people want me to be the poster girl for beauty being on the inside, but that's not what I am about. Body image, beauty myth, it's not my thing. I'm about the power of the mind. If anything, I want to be a shining example that anyone can do anything if they have the mental fortitude. Can you tell me more about that? It's a really interesting juxtaposition because there's such a big body positivity movement at the moment and people saying, well, beauty comes in in all forms, all shapes, and you would be very well positioned to Mm. be in that space if you wanted to, but you clearly analysed it a different way. Yeah, and you know what? I actually feel like my thinking now has gone back because I think irrespective of my opinion, appearance still matters and it shouldn't. We all know that. We all know that beauty is on the inside and we're so much more than this vehicle that we're in. We all get that. But at the same time, when you're the Prime Minister of Australia and you get picked over about your appearance or when I get criticised for my appearance, that message that we're getting from the media and society tells us that, no, if you're a woman, your appearance does matter. So I'm not sure how we overcome that. I think a starting place is to see more examples of people who are different sizes, who are disabled, who look different, who are First Nations or women of colour, so that our understanding of what beauty is, it's not just this conventional mould of being a thin white woman, so that it's a little bit broader than that. As much as we love Margot Robbie, it's not just Barbie, absolutely. (laughs) You've certainly used that mental fortitude that you speak about to uh, do some incredible things, um, physical fortitude, mental fortitude, because you've achieved things that when you were lying on that hospital bed, I'm sure your medical team would have said were impossible. You've completed not one but two Ironman competitions and that's serious stuff in Australia. That's a 3.8-kilometre swim, 180-kilometre bike ride and then you throw in a full marathon of 42 kilometres just for good measure. Even reading those things out makes me feel tired. Um, So can you tell us about the journey from that hospital bed to doing those incredible physical feats? So what I what I did consciously throughout my journey was try and focus on just the day that I was in. 
Then I did a couple of feats just to test, I guess, my, my physical abilities. So I did like a hiking trek with a group of friends as a fundraiser for Interplast. I did a charity bike ride around part of Australia just as a test. And no one who isn't burnt would find those things particularly difficult. But for being as quite a sick person being in hospital, that was still quite full-on challenges for me. One of the things I did with an Ironman is I got an Ironman triathlon coach and I think that's really important. We can't expect to do things by ourselves. So I had a, I had someone outside of me who was giving me guidance and feedback on my performance and whenever I would feel like I wasn't improving or I wasn't getting any better, I would look back at the training that I was doing maybe six months in the past and I would have that physical evidence because I of course I tracked everything in a spreadsheet I had that physical evidence of I guess the improvement I'd made or how much further I was swimming or how much further I was riding or how much further I was running and Ironman really is something that normal everyday people can do you don't need anything special to be able to do an Ironman You only need to have that willingness to do the training, put in the work, and then come race day. It should, in theory, it should be relatively straightforward. Although, of course, it's not. It's not straightforward during the day. All sorts of stuff happens. Your swimming cap bursts, you run out of fuel, the aid station doesn't have what it's not as straightforward, but it's the training for the Ironman that is the hardest part. Can you describe the sort of inner force that propelled you through that though? Because it would have been to go through what you went through to build your life as it is now, your podcasts, the books, raising your family. That in and of itself is just a miraculous journey from being as badly burned as you were and being in that hospital bed. What drives you to add this extra burden on this, you know, extra sense that you've got to do more? I don't know. And maybe I could ask you the same thing, Julia, because obviously you're quite a high achiever and you like doing things that are difficult and that are hard. I relish a challenge and I like it when people tell me that something can't be done. I find that motivating. Um, I know everyone's not the case. I know for a lot of people, They wouldn't feel motivated if someone said it couldn't be done. They might need different words spoken to them, but I'm very much a person that when I get told something can't be done, it's like lighting a fire under my ass. I think I did Ironman because when I was in hospital, there was no expectations of me. So I got told that I'll be able to drive again. I'll get a job. I might get married. So there was, there was these super low expectations of me and I found that intensely irritating because I was someone who was such a high achiever. It was something I wanted to prove. I wanted to prove to myself that I was fitter than I was during the ultramarathon. And I know it's a, it's a twisted way of thinking, but I don't think I would be where I am if I didn't have that inside me. I think we need a slogan, stubborn women of the world unite, because I think I'm pretty stubborn and I think you are yeah. too. And I agree yeah. if you're told that you can't do something, then that is big motivator. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it is. But I think it's also an unfair, 
You know, if you feel like you always have to be great at something to have a go, if you can't just be ordinary, if you have to go above and beyond, that's also that's also really exhausting. It's really exhausting, and it's and it's hard to get entry into that into that as well. But clearly, you you choose to. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that that stubborn streak wins out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, tell my husband that. Tell my husband that. <laughs> Being stubborn's good. Now, I'm going to take you to the questions I ask each of my guests. And the first of those is, what's the worst misogyny you've ever had to face? I think when I was a mining engineer, there was a bit of sexual harassment. And at the time, being a young woman, being new to the job, I felt like I had to go along with it. I had to laugh it off. I had to treat it like it was no big deal. Uh, you know, an older man once came up behind me and, and start, grabbed me by the hips and started thrusting, which obviously made me feel really uncomfortable. This is my place of work. There was other people who witnessed it, but no one said, oh, that's not appropriate. You don't, you don't do that to women or I'm going to report you to HR. So there was none of that. So I felt like I just had to pretend it wasn't really a big deal. And when I look back at that experience or experiences like that, it's really hard as a woman in a male-dominated workplace, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Julia, if there isn't people around you advocating on your behalf because it's it's really exhausting always having to be the person to put in a complaint or to raise an issue with HR. And I, I actually did neither of those things because I felt it would compromise my employment I would have been seen as someone who kicks up a fuss, who's difficult, who doesn't get a joke. And then if you're looking to fast track someone or give someone a different position, if someone's difficult, kicks up a fuss and doesn't get a joke, you you might not hire someone like that. I don't know if any of that is true. I don't know, but that, that was a feeling I got at the time, particularly when no one stepped in to be an ally or to advocate for me. Yeah, I think women uh, have those feelings very, very commonly in that situation. On a more positive note, if you had all the power in the world and you could change one thing for women, what would you change? Look, there's so many things to change for women. Equal pay, even the Matildas, you look at their what they're getting paid compared to what male soccer stars are getting paid. It's not even at all what they're getting paid. But I think I would like it if the job of mothering, which I believe is a job, it's a job and it's also an important job. We all say it's the most important job in the world, but there's no financial benefit to it. In fact, you get penalised financially if you're a mother or if you're a full-time mother or if you're caring for someone else as well. You get financially penalised and it's a really important job, but there's no money and so it's like no one really gives a shit but yet you still got to do a good job because if you get it wrong, then the consequences can be dire. So I think if there was more importance placed on, on mothering and maybe even a financial compensation for this very important job of, of mothering or taking care of people. It's a fantastic answer. I also always put a fact to my guests and the fact for you oh is research has shown that when it comes to running, the longer the distance, the smaller the gap becomes between men and women. 
A 2020 study found that when people race beyond 195 miles or 313 kilometres, the average pace for women is slightly faster than the average pace for men. Does that surprise you? And what does that tell us about women and their capacity for endurance? No, it doesn't surprise me because I did I did know that. I think it's because in a longer distance run, it's not really about your physical strength anymore. It's more about your mental strength. And I think that women are exceptionally mentally strong. We care for other people. We go to work. We care for our families and our friends and our partners. We have so many extra responsibilities that no one ever really notices. It's almost like we're carrying the world on our shoulders and we just get on with things. And I'm not saying that's a healthy approach to take either, but I think we have an amazing capacity to just take the next step. And that's all you need to do in an ultra marathon. You don't need to be fast. You don't need to be strong. You just have to take that next step. Virginia Woolf uh, is a woman who's given birth to many quotes, and I always put one to my guests and ask them to respond. This one, I believe, might be familiar to you. You actually posted it online a few years ago. Virginia Woolf says, a feminist is any woman who tells the truth about her life. How does that speak to you? (laughs) Well, I like it because it's what I've always done because I think it's easier. If you just put it all out there, there's no shame that you're carrying you're telling the world that you're that you like the person that you are and that you're okay with it and i think people respond to it too because i think if you're i hate this word but i'm going to use it i think if you're authentic people like that as well if you're true to the person that you are it's you're more relatable Absolutely. And thank you for putting it out there in this conversation and for such a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Turiya, thank you for joining me. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash GIWL and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at GIWL Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time.